Good morning. <clears throat> Did you guys grow up with your moms waking up to good morning, good morning, good morning to you? That's what we do when I wake up her in the morning. What was yours? Oh, and, and give, give God, God the glory, glory, glory right. And I was like, shut up. That's a good one, too. I should add that in. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to Bible study. Uh, just a couple announcements. Reminder that our last Bible study will be May 2nd here. Um, and if you go to Wednesday, either in the morning, women's Bible study and or high school, if you have a high schooler, um, Bible study will be ending for them on May 3rd. So please make sure that you have that in your calendar. Uh, it's not ending for good just for summer. Um, as summer <laughs> approaches, we will, unless Shannon... <laughs> it's just about to come back. No, she's coming back. I'm making her. Um, we will put out some stuff in the summer um, as that gets rolling too, but we have three more weeks left and then you'll have a summer break. Um, additionally, just be praying for Shannon this week. She is heading out on a whirlwind weekend through Aspire Women's. She's going to be in Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana. Indiana. And then are you still flying out of Nashville? Yes. And flying out of Nashville. So she's hitting four states in four days. <clears throat> she has some late nights and really early mornings. So if you could just be praying for safe travels for her, um, for wisdom. And she's also hosting, so lots of energy as well. Uh, that is all I have for you. There's this the calendar up there. She'll be in Westerville, Richmond, and Bowling Green. So if you know anybody in those areas, uh, please reach out to them and invite them. They can go and register on aspirewomens.com. Come have a wonderful Tuesday. Awesome. Yeah, it's a whirlwind, all right. I looked at my uh I looked at my flights yesterday and I'm like, this cannot be correct. Like I'm flying into Columbus, Ohio. I arrive in Columbus, Ohio at 1:35 a.m. And I'm like, say what? And so, but I mean, you know, that's the time change. And then I thought, well, I don't really want to fly in at 1.35 a.m. by myself. And then I realized that uh, Sierra, our road manager, was with me. And I'm like, okay, we can do that together. Take a shuttle over to the, um, the hotel and go to sleep. And then we get up the next day and drive and do all that. But then, then I looked at my return flight and I'm like, Nashville, that has to be wrong. I'm coming out of, how am I getting to Nashville? And then it wasn't wrong. But then the worst part of it was it said 5 a.m. flight. And I go, so I called her and I said, okay, talk me through this trip. So we're speaking, the last one is in Bowling Green, Kentucky. How far, after the event, we're driving to Nashville? And she's like, yes. And that's only a couple hours or something. And I go, okay, but after the event, we're doing that. And then we're going to get to the hotel. And then I have a 5 a.m. flight. So I have to be at the airport at 3 a.m., which means what? I'm not going to sleep. Okay. And then I'm going to get on the airplane at 5 a.m. I'm going to be in a coma. I'm going to get home and be in a coma. And then want to study? Yeah, that's not going to happen. So then I said, what's my other option? She said, well, you can leave at, uh, I'm leaving at 9 o'clock p.m on a Monday. And I'm like, well, and I get in at 1130 or something. And I go, well, actually, that's a better situation because then I'll sleep. I'll wake up in the hotel. I'll study there. You can drop me off somewhere as you do. She's got stuff to do there. I'll sit as, uh, somewhere and I can study, but at least I'll be awake, alert. And at nine o'clock at night on the airplane, I can actually get something done at that time. So I'm going to get back at 11.30 p.m. on Monday night. Now, what you need to pray about <laughs> is uh, these flights today are wackadoodle. So if anything goes wrong, I don't know what to tell you. I'm doing the best I can, and we'll figure it out. And um, then maybe uh, everyone, all of my Tuesday morning will come to Wednesday morning. You can drive over to uh, Greenway and Cave Creek. I, I don't know. but And we'll pack out that church and you can hear it on Wednesday morning or something. But we just do the best you can. But I just wanted you to know that this is how tight sometimes things are. And if anything goes wrong, there I am. Um, so, yes, I am. I always fly Southwest. Well, there you go. 
so Southwest is all grounded for technical issues. Well, we'll see how long they're grounded. And here is the thing. We can only worry about what we, well, we, we shouldn't even do that, but what we have control over, right? And what a beautiful segue into uh, the end of uh, Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 11. So, um, oh, Lord willing, I'll be able to bring out some beauty of these chapters. So let's pray, and I'm just going to dig right in where we left off. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Um, God, I pray that Oh, the truths of it would be planted deep inside of our hearts, and uh, we wouldn't just be, we wouldn't just hear it and then walk out as if um, nothing was changed, but it's a constant reminder, Lord, that you are in control, you are at work. There are things going on behind the veil that we are unaware of. And so, but what we do know is who you are and that we can trust you, um, and that all of this, all of this plan is written in your book, meaning, um, it is progressing to an end, and that end is your victory. And because we are in you, it is our victory, and so we can have peace in that. So I love you, Lord. Please teach through me beyond what I'm capable of. Um, I sure love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I'm going to start with verse 12, reading in chapter 10, just to remind us of kind of where we were. Okay. Remember the situation right? Daniel has been fasting and praying for, and mourning, I mean, grieving for three weeks over the situation with his people. What is the situation? Well, Cyrus has made a decree that had let the people return. A caravan has gone back. They have been attempting to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And how is it going? Not good. And right away, Right away, actually, they started facing all kinds of opposition. And we know that in history, they, they faced so much opposition that eventually the rebuilding shut down for approximately 15 years. Now, Daniel is still in that upper echelon of the Persian Empire. And so he has been hearing all that has happened with his people. And keep in mind, I mean, we talked about this before, but although he knew the prophet uh, Jeremiah had said that the exile would last 70 years, and that was his prayer to God, is 70 years enough for the redemption of Israel? And the answer to that was what? No, it's not. And he's still seeing um, that trouble is still ahead and trouble is coming. And, and he's worried about it and he's down about it. And now how old is he? He's old. He's in his late 80s possibly early 90s, and it is just like the next, um, the next problem has occurred, and he now knows what? He may not ever, he, he will not ever see the fruition of all that he hopes for his people, and he's mourning over this, and so he has been grieving and mourning for three weeks, and then he has this supernatural experience um, at the Tigris River, where um, an angelic being appears to him and is um, telling him this vision. So let's start just in, in verse 12, and then we'll kind of highlight some things and move on. It says, then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. When we talked about that's miraculous. Does prayer matter? Absolutely, it matters. His humility and his desire to understand um, and his prayers, his fasting and praying, it meant so much that when the veil was pulled back, he got to see that a cosmic battle is going on. It is raging between the kingdoms um, in the heavenly realm. And his words, and he is so um, important and loved, his words were so important, his prayers were so important that things were stopped so that a messenger could come to him to make sure that he understood. We're going to see that. So it says, And the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the visions is for the days yet to come. 
And so he is saying, the whole reason I have come is to give you understanding. And I'm giving you understanding because the vision I'm going to tell you about is in the future. It is for days yet to come, meaning you won't ever see it. Okay. Now, part of that is kind of depressing in a sense. We're going to see that he is already grieving over what he is seeing right now. And this vision is going to tell him it's going to get worse. Okay. But then I love what it continues. It says, when he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. I mean, think about it. The days yet to come, what is yet to come? And he's already seen several visions showing that it is still going to continue to be hard. We're 70 years enough for the redemption of the people. No, they have harder times coming. And I just see when he says he, and I turned my face towards the ground and I was mute. How does that look in our vocabulary? Just, just, oh, exhaustion. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man turned, touched my lips, and then I dropped, I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I have no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Hot power version, like, I'm done. I don't, I don't even know what to say or what to ask anymore. Like, I'm exhausted. This is, this is where he's at. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, oh man, greatly loved. So when he's exasperated, when he is exhausted, when his head is just down and he's just mute, he's got nothing left. I mean, remember, he just got off the floor. I mean, and it took strengthening just to put him up on his hands and knees. I don't know if you've ever been wiped out. If you've literally everything, you just, you're on the floor. And it takes people getting you up just on your hands and knees for a while. And then they finally strengthen you and talk to you enough because he had already said you are beloved to stand you up. And then you may be standing up, but you, you got no words. You, you don't even know. You can't even put it together anymore. And they strengthen you. And this is what this angel, I, I wonder, are we angels to each other? God can use us to do the same thing, to strengthen the saints, to get them up on their hands and knees, to get them up on their feet, to strengthen them, to say some of these very things that this angelic being is saying to Daniel. And what does he tell him? Fear not. Peace be with you. Have peace. I use those words this week, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why later. And then he says, be strong and of good courage. He says, and as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So when he heard these words, I mean, think about it. This is, these are, this is really happening. He says to him, listen, don't be afraid. He's been picking him up off the floor. This has taken time. Now, don't be afraid. Be at peace. And he says, be strong and of good courage. And Daniel finally says, okay, okay, I'm all right. Now speak to me. And then he said, do you know why I have come to you? Now think about that. When someone asks you a question, what are they telling you to do? Consider. And do you remember when he had the, the visions in the past? What was one of the things um, that Gabriel at that time told him to do. Consider the vision. Consider. Think about it. I think that's what we need to do in the scriptures. We need to sit and what? Consider this. He says, do you know why I have come? So if Daniel is sitting to consider, what are some of the things he, if, okay, well, why, why did he come? Well, he came because I was seeking that. So they heard my voice. He came so that I would know what? There's more going on than what you know. He came so that I would understand. Understand what? God is in control. 
I did not come to drop you on the ground. I did not come to scare the bejeebers out of you. I didn't come to zap your strength. I came here to do what? To strengthen you, to tell you to have peace and not be afraid because I want you to understand there's more going on than meets the eye and you are so important to us. We need you to understand this because you have been a part of this. And what had he been feeling before? He's watching the river and I just assumed what? He's feeling pretty hopeless. Seeing this river rage on, who could possibly even affect it? Or where is it headed? And how do I fit in? And all of this. And what is he finding out from this vision? He says, consider why I have come. What am I telling you? You are important. And you are loved. And you have been a part of this flow. But what you need to understand now is what? I'm in control. I'm in control now and I'll be in control when all of these other things happen. Questions are important. So I, uh, I kind of experienced that uh, this week. It, it's so interesting how things happen to me during the week. Sometimes it's not interesting, but it's, it's a pain. But so on Saturday night, I was invited to a birthday party of um, a gal in my Tuesday night Bible study that I'm trying to, that I'm getting to know. And, um, and so it was out at this country Western place, which that's fun out in new river. And there was like bull riding and, uh, a great hamburger and country Western music. So I got to wear my jeans and my cowboy boots and that's awesome. And so I go out there now, nobody knows me, um, except the birthday girl and one other gal. And it's like a hodgepodge of friends from her life. And um, it is always fun to go to that. And then when people introduce you, oh, this is my Bible teacher. Like, you should see the looks on their faces as they're drinking their Bud Light. Like, oh, and I'm like, why do y'all look at me like that? I am a human being, right? It makes you want to just grab it and take a swig so that they feel comfortable. Like, I'm good. We're good. You do you, boo. I'm here as a human being, as a person, you know. And so, but as they get to know me, they begin to lighten up and go, all right, okay. She's okay. But it never fails a lot of times. And this is why sometimes it gets exhausting because you're always on duty. Um, so one of her friends uh, starts asking me questions like about the Bible. And her in-laws have gotten involved, and I can't even think of the official name of it, but it's, and it, it happens a lot. I see it a lot, where they go back to these old Hebrew legalistic roots. And they get very narrow, and they want to learn the Hebrew language, and every holiday has a pagan origin, and we shouldn't celebrate Easter on Easter because it was originally pagan, and that's wrong, and Christmas, and all of this. And, it, and what ends up happening is it gets very uh, stringent and narrow and in this box, and it causes all kinds of division, and it is very much us and them, us and them mentality, right? Very pharisaical, in my opinion, okay? So she's been affected by that, and her husband had kind of started getting involved in that, and it was causing all kinds of stuff. So she's asking me about it, and so we're sitting there as the country music is going on, the bull riding, and I'm kind of talking through that thing, and I'm seeing the pain that is in her, almost like she feels like she has to defend the fact that she is an actual Christian and that God loves her, although she doesn't align with their teaching. It's like she feels attacked or she feels judged, and I get it. So I'm talking her out of that, and I see the pain in her, and it makes me mad. That movement stuff just burns me up. So then I'm driving home, and I get a text message as I'm driving New River Road, and I'm trying to, trying to not die, and I'm reading this text message a little bit, and I'm like, okay. So it's another uh, friend of mine who's on Tuesday morning Bible study, and she went to church, and she heard some things about what happens after uh, life after death, and she had some real fears that came up in her, Okay something she heard. And here's what I know. Sometimes when we're teaching, we will be teaching something and it might be heard very different. I have, I've experienced this myself to where someone will come up and go, man, what you said today was so good when you said da, 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 da. And I think, I don't recall saying da, 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 da. 
I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about that a little more because I don't remember saying that phrase, right? And she was real good about it. She goes, now I can't find the phrase that really set me off, but here's what it is. And I go, okay, well, let's not worry about that. Let's worry about what's going on in you, what you're confused about. And so she was confused about the fact of judgment and reward. And she heard it in a way where it seemed like it was going to be some kind of caste system of where we were going to be placed in the afterlife because of what the things that we had done. So I was able to, first off, I said to her, now I want you to think about who Jesus is and who you know him to be and how he lived while he was on the earth. And I always want you to go back to that. What part of him and how he lived makes you think that ever when he redeems all things, he's going to make it a caste system? Okay, so think about that. And then I said, now let me tell you how reward I believe will work. I go, let me give you an example of the crowns. There are five crowns that are talked about in the Bible um, that are reward. And I said, so they are directly tied to the activity. For example, it says that for those who long to see the Lord's return, they will receive the crown of righteousness. What is righteousness? To be in right relationship. So doesn't that make sense? For those who long to be with Jesus, what is the crown going to be? That they will be. That they will be in his presence. And not only that, they will see their relationship by sight, but they will see then every other relationship made what? Whole. The crown is the beauty of the fruition of the desire or the activity. So another example, for those who share their faith, they will receive the crown of joy. Doesn't that make sense to you? Because in the after, you're going to look up and what are you going to see? People that you have led to the Lord and they have led to the Lord. And the reward of that is the joy that is directly tied to the activity. How about for those who shepherd God's people, they will receive the crown of glory. Well, of course they will. Because you're sharing in the glory of the Lord, who is the good shepherd, who was the original shepherd of the people. And so I said, you have all this. It's directly tied. We try to make it material, like it is something that's going to put us at a level. No, it is the fruition. What we're seeing is that what we do here matters, and we're going to see the beauty of what it is in the end. And I said, and then remember, even symbolically, when we have the crowns, what are we going to do with them? We're going to lay them at his feet because at that moment, we know that anything good that came out of us is because the spirit of God worked through us. And I said, and lastly, what is the deal is there will be no self then. We will be fully in Christ Jesus as the son is to the father. We will be to the son. We will be one body. So whatever happens to the body happens to me. So if you receive a reward, guess what? I rejoice in it because we are one body. But see, we don't think that way on this earth. So right now you're feeling less than because of some way you're looking at or some worry, but that's not right. Because if you're feeling less than, then he would be feeling less than. And she goes, oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm talking through that. So the next morning, she calls me back, and, uh, and she's a part of, of the church, and so we're talking through that some more. And then my friend sends me Instagrams, all right? Uh, y'all don't know I have a man friend, but I do, so I'm just putting it out there for y'all now so that you don't have to guess, okay? And um, so he sends me these Instagram posts, all right? And to me, they're two crackpot preachers. Now, keep in mind what I've been doing, okay? And one of them is talking about the same thing 
that we shouldn't do Easter, that Easter's pagan, that, you know, the whole thing. And I listened to about two minutes of it. And then the next one was this dude doing something on the board saying that man was made in the image of God, but yet woman was made in the image of man. And then I just went bizarre. And so I'm sitting there watching this. Okay, now coming out of all my other discussions, I handled this like junk. I called up and I said, here's my intro. Why in the world, this is my tone, why in the world are you sending me these crackpot preachers talking about this kind of nonsense? He stayed calm. Well, I just wanted to know what you, what you thought about it. I'm going to tell you what I think about it. I think about it, it is junk. And I went on a tear talking about what is wrong with us. Why in the world are we so determined to make things narrow and pharisaical and legalistic so whatever the origin of this holiday is, for centuries Christians have been, this is how I was, centuries Christians have been using it to celebrate the risen Lord. The majority of this world has no idea the origin of Easter. It is an opportunity for us to celebrate the fact that Jesus fulfilled all of this law of what we have to do, when we have to do it, what date, how to do it, and he fulfilled it all for us. He died and he freed us from the law so that we have freedom. So why don't we spend an entire Easter sermon teaching people about the legalism of, oh no, this is the wrong day. Why don't we just focus on, oh no, this is the wrong day and not tell them that they are free in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I was on a tear. And I said, and let me tell you another thing. I go, Made in the image of man, I am sick of everybody attacking my gender right now. And now a preacher is saying that I am made in the image of man in the, oh, in the beginning, God created him. He created them, male and female. He created them. They were one whole in creation and he separated them in two. There is no male nor female, nor slave, nor free, nor Greek, nor, I mean, I went crazy, okay? So then <laughs> he goes, I said, and, and then he kind of responded a little janky, wouldn't you? And, and then he said something, and I said, um, I go, well, you know, I just, I'm sick of this. I've been teaching about this. And I go, and plus, I go, he goes, well, let me ask you something. Why do you, I go, why are you even listening to that? He goes, why do you think I sent it to you? <laughs> I go, probably not for me to treat you like a child. <laughs> probably not to enrage me and go to my teacher, mother, tone of voice to make you feel stupid for ever bringing it up to me. Yeah. Maybe because I actually wanted to know what you thought. And I said, let me tell you what just happened to me. Fear just happened to me. And I said, because in the political realm, you have the tendency to go down the dark alleys of conspiracy theories. And don't get me wrong. I can slightly go down that alley to a point. Okay. And I said, but you go, you know, you can go down that. I think what happened to me is now this is my lane. And I thought you possibly might be being, you know, brought down the alleys of this cuckoo clocks. And it scared me. So what did I do? I controlled you. And I was like, nope, this is my lane. I got it all figured out. I'm so smart. I know the truth. You get behind me and you do what I say and you believe what I tell you to believe because this is the direction we're going. I said, this is exactly what I used to do at times to my children. Do you do that? Instead of taking the time to really sit down and answer the questions and do that. And part of me, I was tired. I'm tired of always being on, right? So I was on, on, on. And I honestly, I didn't want to sit down and spend the time that day going through it. So I just wanted to tell him what to believe. And we're just going to get past this quick and talk about something else. And this is the way we're going. And because of that, right, I missed the whole thing. When I read this this morning, I thought, oh my gosh, 
He is telling him, stop and consider why I've come. When someone asks you a question, consider. Because he is saying, if you stop and consider why I have come to you, you will have less fear and more peace and it will strengthen you. Because the whole reason I came, we just showed you that there's a cosmic battle going on. And you're so important and beloved because you humbled yourself and you wanted to understand, we want you to understand. And so God has sent me to tell you to help you understand. Now, I know that the experience with me puts you on the floor, and now I have worked your way up, but I have a vision to tell you about, and that is what he does. So he says, be of strong, good courage. And he goes on to say, aren't y'all glad y'all don't have to put up with me on a daily basis? Is anybody else like me? That's just what I want to know. Do you just get carried away with your tone or, or whatever happens, you know? And I'm like, I said, dude, here's the thing. Be glad that I am who I am now because it didn't take me long to see it. I go, so part of fixing this in me is what? Seeing it. If I was 30, I probably would have fought you like a junkyard dog for the next two and a half hours because I wasn't wrong. Now I just know I am. Like, I'm too tired. Like, you're right. I messed that up. Can we move on and let's talk about it? Do, do we get there? The good part about new is that we don't have ruts that we go back to automatically. So I want to work really hard at the beginning not to form those ruts. Does that make sense? All right, there's your marriage counseling for the day. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return and fight against the prince of Persia. So it's almost like he got the answer, right? So do you know why I've come to you? Consider it. Okay. Now that you know that, I got to go back and fight. I got to go back to what I was doing. And when I go out, then behold, the, the prince of Greece will come. And I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contend at my side against these except Michael, your prince. What did we just find out? I'm going to tell you what is in the book of truth. What does that mean? You can get sidetracked by the fact of, you know, do we have free will? Does it matter? Um, is it, or are we just living according to a script that God already wrote? You can get sidetracked there in the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But the fact is, God is sovereign and he has never taken our free will away. How that operates together is a mystery. But what we do know is that he is aware. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows exactly what is going to happen and he knows exactly to, into what end will come. And so can we trust that? Daniel, you're about to die and you're worried about your people and you're grieving about your people because at the end of your life, they're still in a pickle and you know that it's going to get worse and you're going to be gone. But guess what? I've got it all in my, my book. And it's not just about you. You're a part of something. We're at work and history is headed somewhere and I'm fully aware of it. That brings you peace. And then he goes on to tell the history. So look at, um, look at chapter 11. Okay, look at chapter 11. I do want to make the point in chapter 10, verse 14, when it says, now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. I think it's really interesting that when we're going through hard times, we often think this is the end. This is it. This is end times. It's bad. We're living in it, right? Don't you think Daniel thought that? Don't you think the disciples thought that? Isn't that why Jesus says in Matthew 24, do not be deceived. It's going to look real bad. It's going to look, you're going to have wars and rumors of war. You're still going to have problems. It's going to look like nothing happened. But guess what? This is not the end. The end is not yet. And so I want to re us to remember that because we hear that all the time. 
And when you really hear, and in some ways, right, the things that we're hearing today make you nuts because it is so illogical. And you just see the scales on eyes like you can't, you can't see the logic or the illogicalness that's going on here, okay? But in many ways, if you go back in history, we don't have it bad yet. We don't. And so we're always like, oh, this is the end. This is the end, right? It doesn't matter. We are still called to do the same thing, whether or not we think it's the end or the end is coming, is to what? Endure and remain faithful. We're going to see that. So look at Daniel 11. I'm going to read some just to get us started. As for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall rise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of the heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the, his, to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these." Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall give up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times." Your brains are like, what? Okay, I'm just going to read a little bit more just for the fun of it. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands and he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again arise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those days, many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among their own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail." Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege work and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, and even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms and of agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence indeed. He shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found." Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall rise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. And he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of covenant." 
And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people. And without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do neither his, uh, do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. And he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power in his heart against the kings of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For plots shall be devised against him, even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts will be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is not yet at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land." At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. I'm just going to stop there because y'all can't handle anymore and neither can I. All right. So he is telling him, right? This is not the end. And he wants them to understand. And other than chapter nine, this is probably the other chapter that is the hardest in the entire Bible and the most debated. Now, this first part of it is not highly debated because it is laid out history before you. I'm not going to bore you with some, but I am going to walk you through the first part of this history because I have a point at the end of it. Okay. So let me tell you basically what is being described here. Okay. Chapter 11, one through two is prophecies about Persia. And remember, this is not strange to Daniel because do you remember the vision in chapter eight? You're like, no. Okay. Yes. Um, you have, uh, it was the vision. Basically, he was explained what would go on uh, the kingdom of Persia and then on into Greek into Greece. Okay. So this, this first sequence is familiar with him, but basically this is about Persia. Okay. Verses one through two. Um, it makes sense following the other visions. Um, he is, we also see that there was a cosmic battle, right? That we've already heard thus far involving the Persian Kings. Okay. Think about it. The Persian rulers, have actually been more considerate towards the Jewish people than the Babylonians had been. Think about it. Cyrus let the Jews go home and rebuild the temple. And what we know now because of chapter 10 is how does that happen? There is a battle in the heavenly realms, right? In the kingdoms of men that we see played out on the earth. And so there is a battle for that. So he let them come home, right? He gives an edict that we see in Ezra 1, 1 through 4. And so the first is about the Persians. Okay, so it is talking about four kings in the Persian empire. And there's, there's some debate over what kings, but let me just give you a little Persian history of what's going on. Okay, the first king after Cyrus was Cambyses, he is Cyrus's son. He ruled between 529 BC and 522. Okay. He is more than likely the Hasaris of Ezra, which is a title, of Ezra 4, 6. Okay. He tried, he came after Cyrus and he tried to capture Egypt because Nebuchadnezzar had once held that land. So he is trying to get all the land back for Persia that the Babylonians held. And so he wanted Egypt. Um, one of the excuses he gave to go to war with Egypt is the fact that he had asked for the hand of one of the Egyptian princesses and he was denied. And so because of that insult, he went in and he conquered Egypt. Now, 
he conquered Egypt and he ruled over Egypt with an iron fist. And he was basically insane. Okay. He was a nutbag. If you want to know how bad you think we have problems. Oh, he married his two sisters and then he killed his brother who would have also been an heir whose name was Smyrtus. When one of the sisters protested to him, the fact that he had just killed his brother, he killed her. Okay, this is how bad. In the meantime, he's ruling. Now, he is the king of Persia, but he's ruling in Egypt where he has just conquered. In the meantime, one of the Persian priests protests what is going on with this murder, and he causes an insurrection, and he steps into the throne of Persia and renames himself Pseudo Smyrtus, meaning he takes on the name of the brother who was killed. Well, what's his name? Cambyses. You think I have all this memorized. I try. Cambyses, he don't like that at all. Okay, because now this priest with his brother's name has been sitting on the throne and this has gone on a year. So he goes back to the capital of Persia to take, to get him off. And guess what? He dies on the way. Okay, so there's that. So this pseudo Smyrtus rules for about a year. Then there is Darius the first, um, 521 through 486 BC. I won't go ahead into him because you won't be familiar with him. But then there's Xerxes. Are you familiar with him? Okay, Xerxes ruled from 486 to 465, and you would be familiar with him because you would recognize him out of the book of Esther. Okay, Xerxes. Many say that he was the most important leader of Persia. He was the wealthiest, right? He is talked about in the book of Esther. His empire went from Ethiopia all the way to India. But he decided he wanted Greece. And do you remember what this said? That this leader will stir up the people against Greece, okay? So he decided he wants Greece. He went in to conquer Greece, but he got his rear end handed to him. And this is what happened between the chapter one and chapter two of Esther. This is why he's home licking his wounds, trying to find comfort in his harem. Okay, all these stories are based on what is going on in history. All right, so you have these four Persian kings and it fits this vision. Then you go down and you have chapter 11, three through four. And these are all prophecies about Greece. Now this would make sense because Daniel has already been told about Persia and then Greece. And then do you remember what the angel said to him? I'm going to go back and I'm going to continue to fight against the kings of Persia. And then when I come out, I'm going to fight against who? Who's coming next? He literally says it, Greece. Okay. And so he refers to now in Greece, this mighty king. Who do you think that is? Alexander the Great. Are y'all getting smarter in world history by coming to Bible? Okay. I have a point to make about that later, okay? So that's Alexander the Great, okay? Alexander the Great was determined to punish Persia. Why? Because Xerxes started it. He came in to take Greece, and now Alexander the Great is on the move, and he is going to take over the territory of Persia, and so he does. And we are familiar because we've seen him in a lot of visions now, right? That he is swift and powerful. And we know that he takes over the territory. He defeated Persia in 332 BC, but he died in 323. Young. And what do we know? What do we know after? Does he give his empire to his sons? No. He divides it between what? Four generals, and it says four kings from the four directions of the wind. We just read that, right? You're going to learn how to kind of recognize certain things. But let me, let me say this in general about Greece. That seemed, can you imagine? He is conquering the known world. That seems and was a terrible situation in many days. But I want you to see what it did. Because 
Alexander the Great conquered pretty much the known world. The Greek language spread throughout the entire world at that time and his entire empire, which the Greek language became the common language of the day in Jesus's life. It was a common language that everybody knew because of the Hellenization that had gone on under Alexander the Great. And, and the fact that the first New Testament was written in what? In Greek. Okay, so I'm just saying all of these things are written in my what? Book. All of these things that are happening in history, they're still moving towards what? An end purpose. Gosh, we have to believe that. If I didn't believe that, I'd be a wackadoodle for real. And so after, so now when you get to 11, um, five through, I don't know how far, maybe 20, now we're dealing with the generals, okay, the four generals, but we're really only concentrating on two of them. And in the past, they're the two that I kept bringing up to you because I knew they are the ones that are talked about in scripture, okay? And that is, and it's going to be called the king of the north. So when you re start reading in 11.5, it's going to be talking about the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north is the king of Syria, which is the Seleucid dynasty. Okay? That commander, Seleucus, Seleucid dynasty. The king of the south is the area, it's the, it's the empire of Egypt. And it's the Ptolemies. Okay? So, so the Seleucids in the north, Syria and the Ptolemies in Egypt in the south. And this is where it's going to play out. These two kings. What land is in the middle of that? Israel. Israel is in the middle of it. And we're going to see, and there's a point to this, an application to this actually, that they are going to be caught in the middle. It says in verse 5, there'd be one stronger. So Seleucus was actually the stronger of the two from the beginning. But with the help of Ptolemy, okay, he secured the throne of Syria. So at first, those two kings are working together in many ways. Seleucids were stronger, but with the ally of, of Egypt, they secured the kingdom of Syria. But then... Next, you have Ptolemy II. This is verse 6. You can go back and enjoy this or not enjoy this. Okay, I do have a point in this monotony. All right, verse 6, Ptolemy II. And then you're going to have Antiochus II. So Seleucus, you're going to see in that northern kingdom, it's going to go back and forth from the title Seleucid and Antiochus. Same, same family. Okay, but you have Antiochus II. So in order to form a stronger alliance, they attempt to do it through marriage. That's no shocker. That's from the playbook of who? Solomon. This is what Solomon was doing. Bad idea, right? But he did it. Go to 1 Kings 3.1. You will see it. He intermarries with other nations to bring solidarity to hold on to his kingdom. All right. And that was a problem. He started off like his father, David, and he ended up having a divided heart. Why? Women. All right. Which pulled his heart away from his God and he allowed the worship of other gods in his land. All right. But what happened? So Ptolemy, right? Where are they? Egypt. Ptolemy decides he is going to give his daughter I call her Bernice, but it's not really spelled like that. It's like Berenice, okay? But I'm going to say Bernice, okay? So Ptolemy gives his daughter Bernice to Antiochus II so that they can uh, have solidarity. But the problem is he was already married to, oh gosh, what is her name? I always want to call her Laodicea, but it's Laodice, Okay. Ptolemy said, in order to have Bernice, you got to divorce Laodice. So he did. 
He divorced her and he married Berenice. But guess what? Berenice's dad, Ptolemy II, he only lasted two more years and he died. And when he died, guess what Antiochus II did? He took back Laodice. Well, when he took her back, guess what that bitter woman did? She killed them both. She killed Ptolemy II and Berenice, because why? She had an heir, and they were going to take over, okay? So now, it's bad. It's real bad. So now, we end up with Ptolemy III and Seleucus. Remember how I tell you it keeps going from different sides of that line? Now you end up with Seleucus II, which is talked about in verse 7 through 9, this situation, <clears throat> okay, so now Ptolemy in Egypt, Ptolemy the third. Don't you wish I was your history teacher back when you were in middle school? I wish I knew this much back then. Ptolemy the third, he's ticked off. Why? Because Antiochus the second, right, or or Seleucid the second's mom killed his dang sister. So now he wants revenge. Do you see how all this is all messed up? Right? This doesn't have anything to do with the people. This has to do with the power trip in the ruling class is what's going on. So now he wants revenge for Berenice. So he sought revenge um, by attacking the north. And so now he goes and attacks Syria. And in the meantime, he gains victory and he gains great wealth. And that's what verses 7 through 9 are talking about. <clears throat> then there comes a time where they just ignore each other for a while. Until Seleucus II gets his revenge later on, and he goes back and he attacks Egypt in 240 BC, and he gets his butt kicked, and he returns in shame. And he ends up getting killed falling off his horse. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Then you have, um, and so anyway, he rules uh, for about four years. He's a big general, and he, you know, it goes on. I think that's Seleucus III. I can't remember. He, his son killed in battle. Then we get to Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great. He re and this is all in verses 10 through 19. He regained some territory from Egypt, but was ultimately defeated by the Egyptians in 217. Then he just decides he's going to go to India. So then he goes to India and um, he's fighting against Ptolemy IV. So bottom line, what is happening in the north and the south? <clears throat> they are constantly fighting back and forth, back and forth, right? What happens is Antiochus III, right? He ends up going back, trying again to get Egypt, but this time... He gets some pushback from Rome, who is rising up now and handling what's going on. So listen to this nonsense, okay? Because of the pressure of Rome, Antiochus III, this northern king, offered to negotiate with Egypt. Okay, let's, let's end this mess. Let's negotiate. How do you think they're going to do it? Marriage. It worked so well the first time. He decides to marry off his daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy V, hoping she would prove valuable, but she actually stayed true to her husband. So that didn't work out, okay? And so he died, Antiochus III died, and then we go back to the Seleucus side, the fourth. Um, he oppressed the Jewish people by raising taxes um, to send tribute to Rome to keep the peace. And for some reason, just after he raided the temple, he dies. Okay? And then after him comes, because of great flattery, and he, did, he shouldn't have been in that position, but some of the things he does to get the position, we have Antiochus Epiphanes. Just please tell me he sounds familiar to you. The madman. If you don't know who he is, when I taught you about the vision, maybe in chapter 8, I cannot remember when I walked you through the great tribulation of what all happened at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and Judas Maccabeus. That is what the next section is going to be talking about. But here are all my points, okay? 
this is where we'll kind of end up. <laughs> Even addressing just the first phase of all these wars in this vision, to be honest, even before we get to Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did to the Jewish people and how he desecrated the temple and the abomination of desolation, okay? The elements that are highlighted are the endless sequence of great conflict, wars, politics, which seem to never reach a conclusion. Let that sink in. For how many years this is covering what is happening? This one attacks, gets their butt kicked, they go back. This one wants revenge and this attacks. Uh, at some point, this one holds the power and then they get conquered and then the power changes over to what? And then this politicking is done. Here, marry my daughter. Well, that didn't work out too good. And then what do we see? It, it's a big fat mass and it's just a power grab back and forth. And even if someone has it for a time, what will happen? They're not going to keep it. And then it is just an exchange of power and problems that seem to end up where? Nowhere. That's what it seems like. The balance of power seems to ebb back and forth between superpowers. One commentary said this, and I thought it was awesome. But for all their best efforts and vast expenditure of lives and wealth, neither one of these superpowers is able to truly conquer the other. Nor are they able to live in peace with each other. Their best efforts are to forge a unity through political, politically motivated marriage unions and other strategies, and all of those are equally unsuccessful. What a profound perspective of history. Continual wars and rumors of war accomplishing really what? Nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics shift, but it never comes to permanent rest. I'm going to say that again. The balance of power in earthly politics shift, but it never comes to permanent rest. See, what we really hope for, we know this, but what we really hope for is just rest during our lifetime. Because we know that earthly powers will never settle it. We'll never have peace. On the one hand, pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do we gain from all the toil? Well, if you read Ecclesiastes, it says we gain what? Vanity. Nothing. That's one point. The last, the other point is that God's people could not watch from the safety of the sidelines. They weren't able to do that. We're going to look next week and you're going to see that all that happened in the world affected the people of God. They're right in the middle of this. And so are we. And some, you're going to see, were persuaded to take up a sword for one side or the other and fight. And others who just tried to remain faithful and endure, they got demolished too. And we're going to look at that uh, when we come back. But I think the key to, that I wanted you to see by me just going, boring you to death with, and then they did this, and then they did this. And then, I want you to hear it because I don't want you to memorize it for a test, but I want you to hear the folly in it. Just this back and forth, back and forth, going nowhere. And the point that what the Lord is saying to Daniel is that this is what it looks like with man. But I actually want you to know that in my book, what? I am headed somewhere. It looks like not, but I am headed somewhere. And where I'm headed, I will accomplish true peace and redemption. It will never be accomplished from the beasts, from the kingdoms of man, but through me. And you're right. You're never going to escape being affected by it. So what do we do? And we'll look at it next week. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the difficulty of it. 
the work that it takes, because it is in those moments that we have to sit and consider. Why? Why do we need to spend time in this hard chapter? What in the world is in it for us? except just confusion and monotony and all of that. But as we sit and we consider, why did you come to Daniel? Then we begin to understand those reasons and we apply those reasons to our life too. Because like Daniel, we get frustrated and we wonder when is it ever going to end? And we get saddened by what is happening on this earth and the brokenness of it all. And we look at that river and we feel like it's just raging and there's nothing we can actually do about it. And we can't even see the end clearly. We can see it through certain prophecies and promises, but we don't really see where it is going. And yet you come to us and you say, listen, you are loved and you are a part of something big. And the fact is you don't see what is going on behind the veil, but there's a lot going on behind the veil. And it is being played out on the earth and we're going to be, and you're going to be impacted by it. But the fact is, show wisdom in holding fast to your faith to know that I am in control. I am in control and this is headed somewhere. And when you face persecution, because you will, because you're in the middle of this battle, just know in the end, it will be worth it. And so God remind us of those things and teach us how to stand firm in our faith. What does that look like? Because I think it looks very different than what our flesh wants to do a lot of the times. We love you and I thank you so much um, for your scripture. And I thank you so much, God, that you're in control and I'm not and that I can look forward to an end to this story. In Jesus' name, amen.